Welcome to the Substantial Life Podcast, hosted by Jop Foster and Pierre Leroux. In this episode, we will be discussing Sam Harris, especially his books Letter to a Christian Nation and his newest essay in the book Morality Wars. Sam Harris is a famous atheist writer and we thought it would be interesting to look into his thoughts and to have some comments about it. Hi everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of the Substantial Life Podcast. Today we have a bit of a special episode. We will be discussing the writer Sam Harris. Pierre, what is Sam Harris popular for? So Sam Harris is one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, along with Daniel Dennett, the Richard Dawkins, and the late Christopher Hitchens. So they're basically new atheists who who published a bunch of books arguing for the veracity and the truth of atheism and especially took on many of the evils they perceived within religion, the broad, and also attacking Christianity specifically. So Sam Harris is a neurologist and he has also published a variety of books including A Letter to a Christian Nation, The Moral Landscape, and he has recently published in Morality Wars. Because we are doing a series on morality, we thought it would be really interesting to take someone who is a bit in the modern discussion to see what his beliefs are regarding morality and to give our own comments. There was a stage in which me and Pierre read his book together weekly. We discussed, we looked quite finely at the book Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris. It's a popular book published in 2006. So to make sure that the things we are discussing is still his opinion, we also looked at his recent essay in Morality Wars. Morality Wars is a book published this year by Professor Hank Stoker and Dr. Louise Mobile. They're the two editors. And it contains a variety of moral perspectives on what is the foundations of morality and what is morality really. So Harris was one of the contributors to this book and he wrote a chapter on utilitarianism in which he argues for a science of good and evil. So the book is very interesting because among the atheistic intellectuals and moral theorists, you find a variety of different positions. For example, you might find a more utilitarian approach like which Harris holds, and he believes that there's this form of objective morality. And he actually believes it's scientifically measurable. However, there are many other atheists who would disagree with him. For example, in the book you would find Bart Ulifir, who uses a psychoanalysis way of trying to describe why we think there's morality. Or you could look at Professor Michael Roos's ideas, who is an evolutionary moralist, who believes that there's some evolutionary reason why we think that there's morality, while it's actually an illusion. And both Ulifir and Roos think that morality is not an objective facet of reality. So it's interesting to see amongst the atheists this difference in, in moral persuasion. Some who think it's objective and some who think it's subjective. And of course the book is very cool because it also contains a variety of theistic opinions of where morality is and then some ambivalence. People who don't want to say if it's necessarily from God or not but still have quite a lot to say about morality and what, whose opinions are quite a lot of worth. If you are interested in these type of discussions, just check out Morality Wars. Um, it is available on Amazon by Prof. Henk Stoker and Louise Mabil. It has recently been published, so it's quite state-of-the-art on where the discussions are now. 
let's just start our discussion on Sam Harris. Pierre, what would you say Sam Harris believes on morality? So I think in understanding Sam Harris, it's important to first go to his axiological assumptions or his base assumptions. What does he really believe how reality works? What the philosophers would call metaphysics, um, the study of reality. So what does he believe? How does reality work? And then how do we come to knowledge? Um, and then move on to his moral theory. So in regards with his base beliefs of reality, he would be what we call a physicalist or materialist. He thinks only physics and chemistry is what's going on in reality. So that would mean he believes that we do not have a mind in a sense that it exists separately from our body, but that all experiences of non-physical beings, you know, things like God, angels, or even the soul does not exist. There is only atoms and void and the laws of physics. And then in regards of his epistemology, which is the study of knowledge, and also with his metaphysics, the study of reality, he believes in a form what we call scientism or some would call logical positivism. And this, both of these words basically just refer to the idea that all that we can know is that which is scientifically demonstrable. Or, and another way of thinking about it would be in a more soft way, would be that scientism or logical positivism in a, in a soft sense is that the only things that we can really trust or the best way to knowledge of reality is that which the scientific method can demonstrate and can lead us to believe. So that would basically mean that you can only trust the conclusions about the world, about humans, about what is right and wrong, according to Harris, from the scientific method. In other words, from experiment, mathematics, repeatability, the idea that you should be able to do an experiment more than once and that you, it's only that which is basically published in academic journals or among scientific circles. So he assumes this from the get-go. Yeah, this is one of his base beliefs. And then also from this, he basically gets a form of utilitarianism. Now, utilitarianism is a moral philosophy started by Jeremy Bentham and then also John Stuart Mill. Now, what this position says is that what we should do as humans is we should pursue the moral good for as many people as possible and avoid the moral evil for as many people as possible. Of course, this philo philosophical persuasion was within most major moral theorists prior to, to Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. However, what made them unique is the way in which they stated that this specific idea of looking for the good the, the greatest good for the greatest amount of people and avoiding the greatest amount of suffering for the greatest amount of people now entailed that what is good is that what brings happiness. So we should pursue that what will bring the most or the greatest amount of happiness to the greatest amount of people. But what do they mean by happiness? Now here is where Harris, I think in a much more sophisticated way, disagrees with Mill because Mill states it as pleasure. Now, Mill does give the caveat, it's not only stuff like bodily pleasures, but also pleasures of the mind and they're higher and people should rather pursue them. But the, at the end of the day, for Mill, it was a form of only pleasure. But for Harris, it goes a bit further. Harris thinks we should do the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people and avoid the greatest amount of suffering for as many people as possible. But here he means with good, a state of well-being. 
and with suffering is basically suffering when you don't have well-being. Now, Pierre, what does Harris mean by well-being and how do we come to know what well-being is? So for Harris, well-being is a certain physical and social and emotional state. So that's some way of feeling emotionally and physically and in your specific environment. And then fundamentally, this feeling or the state is a brain state. It's a certain way your neurons are firing that's measurable by the scientific method. Remember that Harris is a physicalist. He believes only the physical world exists. And even our experiences come from our brain state. So his idea of well-being would then necessarily be a physical state that he would be saying is desirable, although we experience it mentally. So Harris is a physicalist and holds to scientism. So on his view, it is measurable how much happiness people have by measuring certain brain states. In fact, it's then testable and is also something we could work towards. So to quote Harris in his Morality Wars essay, he says, experience of conscious creatures is the product of natural laws. If they are incompatible but equivalent ways to raise happy, intelligent and creative children, these differences depend upon the organization of the human brain. Therefore, we can account for ways in which cultures define us within the context of neuroscience and psychology. The more we understand ourselves at the level of the brain, the more we will see that there are right and wrong answers to the question of human values. Okay, thank you, Pierre. I think that, so what I'm getting from this is that Harris believes morality is objective contrary to moral relativism. So he believes there's some sort of morality that is for everyone. And then secondly, he believes this can be tested scientifically based on his idea of well-being. And he says well-being can be known from the laws of physics and the makeup of humans. Would you say that's a good description of what he believes? Yes, that's exactly what he says, as in the quotes we previously gave, as well as in this quote, also from the Morality Wars, where he says, even if there are a thousand different ways for these two people to thrive, he's speaking here of a conceptual Adam and Eve, there will be many ways for them not to thrive. And the difference between luxurating on a peak of human happiness and languishing in a valley of internecine horror will translate into facts that can be scientifically understood. So, as you said, on his position, you have a fixed amount of brain states, which are good brain states or states of well-being. And there are only so many paths to achieve this good brain state. So what's important to understand for Harris, as he explains in the moral landscape, the moral landscape, which is the type of moral goods and evils you can do, which have certain peaks, which are moral good actions and certain valleys or or chose which are moral evils, They're, they correspond to the continuum of well-being. And the continuum of well-being is basically all the actual human beings in life who could be in a state of well-being, so environmentally and physically and emotionally and have these pleasure, pleasurable and good brain states, or be at the bottom in a valley of, of being in a misery or a state of non-well-being, so in a state of suffering. So his idea is that these two things, the moral landscape and the continuum of well-being, are identical. 
so that a person who has the most well-being is the person who is highest or on the peak of the moral landscape. So that the more good you live and the more you live towards the well-being of others and yourself, the more you would actually be in a state of well-being yourself. And you would be a morally good person, therefore. So to drive the point home, as Sam Harris says in The Morality Wars, if our well-being depends upon the interactions between events in our brain and events in the world, as it surely does, then there will be better and worse ways to secure it. For Harris, doing what gives these good brain states or this state of well-being is the moral good. What's interesting is how he thinks about doing, the action of coming to certain a to do certain moral goods or certain things which are not moral goods. Because Harris, due to his scientism, which is his epistemology, his way how he thinks we come to knowledge, and his metaphysics, his materialism or thinking all that exists or all that has causal ability is physics and chemistry, he's actually a determinist. So a determinist is someone who believes there is no free will. We simply do as bags of molecules, what bags of molecules do. We are a very, 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 very complex fizzling reaction. What that means basically is that we have certain equations in physics and those equations in physics are deterministic. In other words, if you know the beginning and you know the laws, you can figure out the whole system. That's how we do physics. And so he basically uh, believes that the whole universe is like this. And that we as humans, if you knew the perfect state of every human, you could, ex you could um, predict what they will do and that it is predetermined. There is no freedom. Okay, dear listener, if you yourself know something about Harris, I hope we have given a significant account of what his beliefs are. If you believe that we misrepresented him in any way, please let us know. We would love to correct it because we are now with a fellow moral theorist or someone who's thinking about morality with us. We are very thankful that he's doing such things. We will now start to think, what is the difference between what Harris is saying and what we were, have been speaking about purposes and love thy neighbor as we spoke about human flourishing in the previous episode. Pierre, what would you say are the biggest differences between Harris's system and our system on the good of something is to follow its purpose? One of the major differences would be that we actively reject the idea of scientism. So Job and I are both doing master's degrees in the sciences. We love science. We think it's a wonderful method for discovering, discovering truths about reality. And we think it's something worth pursuing. And I think science done correctly leads to human flourishing. However, I do not think that science is the only way to truth. In order to have the scientific disciplines, we would need to have certain moral assumptions before we can even start publishing anything in a scientific journal. For example, I need a certain morality in order to have the discipline to do science. I need a certain morality to know which science to do and which science not to do. I also need a certain morality to know how I should implement my scientific discoveries. The implementation of scientific discoveries is not an amoral thing. Yes, certain astrophysical discoveries has very little to say about morality often. But discoveries in biological sciences, in nuclear physics, 
Those have huge moral implications. A further problem with scientism would be that science itself as a discipline is also based on certain logical and certain mathematical truths. The laws of logic, what the ancients would call first principles, are things that must be true of reality before we even can start to do any amount of science. Basically, you need to presuppose logic before, before you can start doing any amount of scientific discovery or inquiry. So, to put it simply, you need certain philosophical ideas before science is even valuable. If you believe, like the Buddhists do, that there is no external reality, you cannot do science because you cannot study the external reality. You do not believe there is regularities. So, as Harris states in The Morality Wars, I have argued that the value of avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone can be presupposed, and upon this axiom we can build the science of morality that can then determine a myriad of other human values. In this idea, he basically argues that certain ideas that he's putting forth should just be taken as axioms, or axiomatic assumptions is another word he uses. The problem is, these things that many scientists think of as axiomatic assumptions are actually, as Job called them, metaphysical or philosophical ideas that need to be true before you can do any amount of science. Science as a discipline is fundamentally built upon philosophy. It's built on a, a certain philosophical view of reality and a certain way of getting knowledge. So, these philosophical assumptions must be more certain than any amount of science you could possibly do. Because any certainty you get in your conclusions as a scientist will be built upon these assumptions that you made. And none of us want to say that the idea that there is gravity is just an assumption with no real good reasons. Or as some of these people go as far as to say that philosophy is a bunch of nonsense. But that would mean that the scientific discoveries we make is nothing but nonsense because they're built fundamentally upon philosophy. Also, in our idea that what is good is to choose what fulfills the purpose of a thing, that implies freedom. We believe that there are also immaterial truths to reality. Morality and moral truths aren't physical things floating around in the universe. There are certain immaterial ideas. Also, we think there are minds. We think there's immaterial parts to human beings, which is why we have the ability to make free choice. Further, we also believe, contra Harris, that there are certain moral truths, certain moral truths which are part of the way reality works. It's part of the, it's part of the metaphysical furniture of the reality. Wow, that, that is very... <laughs> we will discuss that, hopefully, in a future episode. So if you have any questions about this last few sentences, please ask them. Another thing about Harris, and he points this out very well, he points this out very well in um, his letter to a Christian nation. He believes your religious views has no effect on your moral views. So he says in the Ten Commandments, it says thou shalt love God only and not make idols. For him, that's a non-moral statement. He assumes this is common sense because he is an atheist. But even if you are an atheist, that is still not the truth. Because a person's religious view is a statement of what is ultimately good. So it is foundationally moral. If you believe that Asherah, the Babylonian fertility goddess, exists and should be worship, worshipped, you believe that what she represents is a good that should be pursued 
and that is a religious view. If you believe the God of the Old and the New Testament is the God of the universe, that will have a very specific effect on how you see morality. If you believe Allah is God, you will also have a different morality based on the nature of Allah, contrary to the Judeo-Christian God. Harris, correctly and worthy of a lot of praise, argues against moral relativism, the idea that everybody just has their own morality, or what's moral for you might be moral for you, and what's moral for me is actually moral for me. And I believe he correctly argues against it. His reasons are that we have a certain fixed amount of brain states which we should desire, and there's only so many ways to get those brain states, um, or those states of well-being. Now, in our view, we would say that certain religious positions would have certain moral implications. For example, you might have a religious conviction that abortion is immoral. Now, this religious conviction is something that carries over into legislation. Because if you are pro-life, then having a pro-choice position in legislation is against your beliefs. Because you are not merely saying, I don't want to have an abortion. You're saying abortion is the purposeful taking of an innocent human life. And the purposeful taking of an innocent human life is murder, therefore abortion is murder. That's the position you hold to. It's not only then a religious position, it's also a philosophical and moral position that you're holding. Because religious positions are not positions held without evidence. So this means that your moral views correlates with your views on how pol politics should be run. If you believe that abortion is wrong, it shouldn't be allowed in any case. If you believe abortion is right, it should be allowed. Contrary to our view that humans have innate moral value, Harris, because he believes in that moral value lies in positive brain states, in other words, what you feel, Harris does not believe that human embryos have any moral worth whatsoever. He believes that because they do not feel anything, terminating them has no effect. And his view is very close to that of the, the moral philosopher Peter Singer as well, who also says because of certain experiences of pain and suffering, um, it would be immoral to kill certain beings, but then also they put up human value in line with what you can do. It's fundamentally a position of your amount of value depends on your abilities. The more ability you have, the more value you have. And then sometimes in a very arbitrary way, some of these thinkers would then introduce the idea that, well, if you reach a certain threshold, then suddenly you have as much worth as humans possibly can have. But that simply doesn't follow from the premise that the more I can do, the more valuable I am. And the more I feel pain, the less people should do certain things against me. And then another thing is Harris believes that sexuality is not a moral concern at all, except insofar as it affects positive or negative brain states. So he believes adultery, for example, is only wrong if the parties involved experiences pain because of it. If there's some way they can mutually consent to it and they do not feel any rejection or betrayal, then it is not a moral concern. On the other hand, because we believe that the good is according to a purpose, we believe sexual relationships, and we will definitely come back to this, has a specific purpose. There's the purpose of unification and procreation. 
And pleasure is only a side product of reaching those goals. And that's part of the issue that I would say we have with Harris and many of these people who find in certain brain states where morality lies is because certain pleasures do not lead to what is actually good or flourishing for people. People might have great brain states while doing unbelievable atrocities. So it's clear that pleasurable brain states or the correct brain states cannot be the standard for what is actual well-being of a human being. And there's where the difference lies between our position and that of Harris. Harris fundamentally finds morality within the mind, within the brain state, and in, within experience. Where, contra to him, Job and I, and many other natural law theorists, would find the morality of an action within reality, not within experience. There is an objective standard as part of the way reality is structured. That, and this is, sounds so close to what Harris is actually trying to argue, but the difference is this, this objective structure is a moral structure as part of reality, which because of our certain views that reality is not only physical, we could actually use in this explanation to say that while there's purposes, we can see the purposes. The reaching of these purposes are the moral good. We have free will, therefore we actively looked to actualize or to achieve these moral goods and therefore we do moral goods. There are certain moral theorists who argue that because moral value is not innate, because it's not because you are a human therefore you have worth, but because you have certain abilities, a certain state of mind or certain intellectual abilities, usually being able to be sentient, being able to reflect and think about your your surroundings, about yourself, your internal state, and so on. Because of these abilities, you have your worth. They have actually argued that you could lobotomize, so you could damage the higher um, experiences and higher intellect abilities of certain individual, have them be born, and then use them as a slave population. It sounds horrible when you hear these types of ideas, but it is what necessarily follows from finding human value in something other than their nature, in something other than the type of things they are. When you give up this form of essentialism, you give up a foundation for moral values and duties, which I think flies in the face of our actual experience of moral values and duties. Yes, because for us to use people as slaves, even though they cannot feel, is still wrong. Like there is nothing in the views of Harris that we in any of the books that we have read about him or in this moral theory that makes that wrong. There's no way for Harris to go beyond the self to the others. The, the only possible caveat he could give and that he does give is the idea that the flourishing of others leads to my own flourishing. The well-being of other people is something I must strive towards in order for my own selfish well-being. Which, this idea that we ultimately just strive for our own selfish gains is actually a form of egoism. It's a form of we people fundamentally are just selfish and that's why we do things that seem to be moral. But this idea would actually go contra that of what Harris is trying to argue. Because remember, Harris is trying to give an objective moral view. He's trying to say there are certain moral values and duties which are true for all human beings. Everybody should do them. However, 
His system doesn't give an explanation for why individual human beings should seek the good of others beyond being selfish and seeking their own good. Because there's no grounding outside of the self. There's no grounding outside of the mind. So in Harris's view, we struggle to see why we should care for other human beings. And as we just argued, we see that it, his view struggles to get human worth and human dignity into other human beings, especially those amongst us who are less able than we ourselves. Contrary to Harris, we would want to say that human beings have a certain kind of nature. They're a certain type of thing. And to some extent in his literature, he does grant that. He does grant we are a certain type of things. But because of a certain, and I think it's a certain philosophical mistake, people think that believing in evolution necessarily excludes the idea of purposes. It excludes the idea that there could be a purpose to certain things. However, as me and Job have argued in previous episodes, we think that having, we think that striving after these purposes gives the best explanation of moral values and duties, fitting with our actual experiences of moral values and duties. And Harris's view misses these moral values and duties. They, his view gives credence to certain immoral actions, which we ourselves would say, and which I think is clear from moral experience and from these ideas we've given of natural law, to be contrary to what we experience as moral. So I'm going to ask you then, Harris would argue that what is moral is what is scientifically testable, and it is scientifically testable that being social or caring for others gives well-being. How would we answer to that? So to a larger degree, we would agree that you would empirically find that caring for others, because we are social beings, would be good for other beings. But where we differ is what we mean by goodness. We don't mean goodness simply in a sense of well-being, but we mean goodness in a sense of achieving our purposes. Because in that sense, it, it creates a barrier against immoral action. So basically, the theory of natural law gives better explanation for our moral convictions. For example, not creating a slave population or not enslaving a small part of the population for the so much greater good of the others as some people have argued. And because we believe these actions of enslavement are immoral, we can give a better explanation of why they are immoral, not only for the greatest amount of people, but for every individual human being, for every individual human being has a human nature. They're, they're a human being, and as human beings, they have an intrinsic worth. And as Christians, we believe this intrinsic worth is ultimately grounded in their imago Dei, being made in the image of God. And... This is important as a distinction because on Harris's view, we do not see a reason why I ought to be moral. The best reason is selfish indulgence. But there's no better reason for why I should be moral because there's no actual punishment for immoral immorality. There's no actual punishment for the tyrant. If he has the best moral state, then he has the best moral state. And I think as William Lane Craig has pointed out so well, Harris's view fundamentally fails because there are people on the continuum of well-being, so people who have the most well-being, who are at the highest points of well-being, and yet, morally, they are the most corrupt and oppressive people we could possibly think of. So the continuum of well-being and the moral landscape are not identical, 
And natural law theory can explain this difference. It can explain why certain actions can be good without us having pleasure in them. Another concern that we have is environmentalism or because there is purposes in other beings and the moral good is to actualize those purposes. So I'm not just called as a human to actualize my own or other humans purposes, but I'm also called to actualize the purposes of other animals and plants. And the actualization of the purposes of the animals and plants are not dependent on whether or not they feel it. This is contrary to Harris's view specifically because he talks about the well-being of people. He does never speak about the well-being of animals. To give him credence though, uh, Peter Singer, who is another secular philosopher in Harris's school of thought, he ascribes morality to sentient experiences. So in Peter Singer's view, a cow has more moral potential than a fly because a cow experiences more than a fly. But he also believes that a fetus has less moral potential than a fly because a fetus cannot feel anything, according to him. Up to the age of one, our intellect is less developed than that of a parrot. So on Singer's view, and I think, as I said, should hold for Harris as well, is that we should, is that the parrot has more moral worth and has more value than a one-year-old human being because they don't have the idea of human beings as certain types of things of moral worth because moral worth is fundamentally the product of sense experience instead of the type of thing they are. And I think this is the confusion of putting worth not in reality, but in the mind. And I think there's the fundamental issue because for all Sam Harris's attempts to get out of the mind into reality until he acknowledges the importance of speaking about things as certain types of things and acknowledging their internal purposes and the moral value of actualizing or achieving these purposes, you will always be stuck within the mind in this system. So to sum up, before we conclude, this actually also shows you this whole interview we did with Harris. We really tried to give his views as best as we can. And please, if you feel like we misrepresented him, please tell us. If you feel like you disagree with us and with Harris, if you are interested in a debate or a discussion, even just writing us a letter, we would love to discuss it. It can be anonymous. You can come on the podcast. We are actually very open to that. So please share all of your personal comments, your interpretive dances and the insults. <laughs> and this is also something that we want to show you as a listener, how we do moral philosophy. So we compared these two moral theories, uh, utilitarianism, specifically of Harris and a bit of Singer, and natural law theory, or the idea that the good of something lies in purposes. And what we are trying to show is that natural law theory explains the things that utilitarianism explains and more. It is more objective because purposes are objective. They do not lie in the mind. Looking at morality as actualizing the purpose of a thing is also more comprehensive than merely thinking about sense experience. Because if you think about purposes, you can have moral questions where there is no sense experience involved, such as a tree. But we see that a tree has a certain purpose and the moral good is to actualize that purpose. In Harris and Singer's view, there is nothing moral about a tree. As well, we can also explain why certain things which feel bad can be good. 
such as sacrificially giving your life. Sacrificially giving your life is the worst thing you can do for your well-being in a sense experience equals morality view. But if we acknowledge that our purposes extend beyond our current life, which is something we will definitely discuss, and please send us questions if you wonder about this or disagree or whatever, but because we believe purposes extend beyond this life, we are able to give our lives even for the good of others. And fundamentally, it gives a better explanation of why we ought to be moral. On Sam Harris's view, we do not have a specific reason for why we should just pursue well-being of ourselves or even of others. It just states it's obvious that we should. But on a natural law theory, specifically the one we hold to, we believe that there are certain moral actions which are woven into... There are certain moral values and duties woven into the nature of how reality works and which is also revealed in scripture, which we ought to follow. And when we do not, there will be actual repercussions. There will be consequences in this life. If you want to take a Christian spin on it, you will receive the sufficient reward for your evil actions within yourself. For that means if I drink too much, I will have liver failure. So if I am immoral, like a glutton, I will struggle with my weight. There are certain actions or evils that follow necessarily from my actions, but then also we have the idea of moral punishment. That, But there will ultimately be a judgment for those morally good actions and for the morally evil actions that we have done. Yes, so that concludes our, that concludes our discussion on Sam Harris. Please, if you have any thoughts or comments, like we have said, please... Send it to us on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, please follow us. Uh, you can find the details in the description below. We also have a blog you can follow in the description below. In the next episode, and we're quite excited about it, will be our first interview. We will interview Prof. Kues Foster. He is a theologian who has specialized in ethics, and he has recently written a book on human flourishing. Prof. Kues Foster has been involved in the UN multiple times. He has also written about the ethics, about an ethical view in a secular society. So we are quite excited to ask him about human flourishing and his views on what a good life constitutes. So we hope you will join us next time on the Substantial Life Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Substantial Life Podcast. If you like this episode, please share this episode leave a comment or ask us a question on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. You can also leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. We will answer questions we receive from our listeners every episode. And remember, seek wisdom wherever it might be found.